Hello and welcome to episode four of the Frame and Sequence podcast. In this episode, I chat with cinematographer and photographer Matthias Kunigsvisa. Matthias is originally from Vienna, but currently lives in Los Angeles. However, he's probably most likely found traveling the globe for his various commercial and feature film shoots. Matthias has done several other podcasts where he's talked about how he came up in the film industry and about specific projects, so I'll link to some of those. But in our conversation, I really wanted to dig into more of what makes him tick as an artist and some of his philosophies and ways of thinking. We do get into a few specifics of his most recent film, Christopher Robin, and and talk a little bit about his longtime collaboration with director Mark Forster. But he also shares some great insights about his approach to both his still photography and how he approaches projects as a cinematographer and just generally how he thinks as an artist and how he leads an artistic life. This was a really fun conversation with Matthias, and I hope you enjoy. Hello, everybody. My name is Matthias Königsvisa, and I'm a cinematographer. And I'm sitting here with Todd, and we're talking about um, some things. We are talking about some things. Thanks so much for doing this with me. Matthias has covered some of his past, uh, you know, coming up through the music video realm and commercials and all that. So I will link to some of those other sources and thought we would just get into more of a sort of casual, personal conversation about what gets you going artistically and what you like to think about in regards to projects and picking projects and stuff like that. And before we pressed record, we started talking about the film versus digital, I don't know, what would you call it? Debate? Yeah, it's the debate. It's, 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 a, it's a very annoying debate, actually, by now, because it is film and digital, you know, I want to call it. I want to say and hope that's the case in the world that we live in right now. I think people were confused, you know, for a while of like... You know what's the what's the better format? What is um, the pros and the cons? And why go back to something when you can shoot much more easily and something is much more accessible? You know when you shoot uh, digital, essentially. But I think the more people shot digitally, the more they saw that okay, in order to apply my own handwriting or to get more out of it, you know, I want texture. I want like certain maybe happy accidents. You know. In order to have a light leak, you would have to just plug in a filter in digital, but in film it just happens and you get the footage back and all of a sudden it's just like this beautiful pain of realizing that something has happened, but in the edit it just works magic. And and that's something I would just hate to give up in a purely digital world. So I hope it's not a film versus digital anymore. I think people are smart enough now to understand that there is a certain an undeniable quality about film and an essential tool in your toolbox to just pick up when you need it. Would you say that there's any moment when digital is the obvious choice, when you would maybe forego film? Yeah. Yes. Sometimes, definitely. Yes. I mean, there, there were moments... Yeah, I, I, I talked about Christopher Robin quite a bit recently, so it's a little bit... I'm trying to yeah, we don't have to talk about other things, but because it's out there in the world, you know, but it is, it was definitely a moment for me shooting film on that film was definitely the gut feeling choice. But then through the, the R&D and, and, and figuring out different techniques, I saw that certain things really had to be done digitally. And so it was actually really educational for me. And I fully embrace it in that respect. And we talked a little bit earlier about still photography, you know, that just the fact that you can focus so much more critically on digital is a massive thing in stills, but so much more so in moving images. You have a macro lens with a diopter, anamorphic, tons of distortion, and you want to focus on the eyeball, right? Right. Uh, good luck on film. I mean, you cannot really, you really have to have a live image to get that right. Unless you focus on your own with limited movement and your uh, subject is super restricted. But I hate doing that. I always like to have the actors move about however they want to move about. And then, you know, the camera follows. So that's when digital is unbelievably good. 
because you can do that and you get you know you get a new aesthetic out of that right which is really fun yeah if you had to pick a digital still system would it be the leica i have issues with the leica a little bit because i the reason why i bought it is because i liked the rangefinder. i like looking through the camera holding it close to my face and using it like a traditional film camera but it proved to be really difficult with the rangefinder to shoot against the sun and shoot backlit and shoot in low light because often it just does not want to kind of show you the the right the, the focal it just want, doesn't want to give you the focus right and so it's it's i've been using the live view more often and at that point i was like okay i'm using this camera wrong so i'm still having a bit of Sometimes I love the images that come out of it, but usually I like the film way of shooting much more. And somehow, yeah, I, I still have to find the right digital camera, stills camera. Right. I have not found it. Do you like to take a, a stills camera with you when you are DPing something? Uh, yeah, 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 definitely. I definitely. So I used to always have my Hasselblad with me which was really rewarding because so many beautiful things you see randomly on a tech scout or shooting, I could capture in medium format and it would have such a different aesthetic than what I would actually capture on, you know, uh, motion picture film or, or, or a digital camera. It was, it was its own thing. And so I really enjoyed, which I'm doing now more too. I usually take my M10 and then I take the Hasselblad or I take the M10 and the M6. So I go film and digital and I can interchange the lenses. Right. So yeah, but most recently I've been going 35 and digital on the Leica, the full Leica system to kind of... Uh, and is the M6 your go-to for the analog? The M6 is... Recently I've really enjoyed the portability and I think every camera system... Your, your, let's put it this way, I think your aesthetic adjusts according to which camera system you're using. Because sometimes you know you can focus really fast and sometimes you know the resolution is really high and sometimes you know that this and that and just the form factor, portability and the technical ins and outs and, and virtues of each system make me a slightly different photographer. And right now I just like to shoot faster and do more street photography and that's what the M6 is great. Oh, very cool. But I think from like what I really like is to be in either in nature with a camera or really work with a subject and model them and design the frame. So speed is not, has never been that important to me. I can work with a really slow, complicated camera and actually really enjoy it. I absolutely love your still photography, and I think that's the first thing I ever saw of yours and uh, went down the rabbit hole on your website, and they have such an emotional, moody feeling to them. When you shoot your personal work, are you using something you have in mind before you start shooting, or are you finding it on the day? Both, both, both. It depends. Sometimes I, you know, you randomly drive around and you see a certain street corner or you know an empty lot or whatever it is some kind of wall texture and then i remember it and i'm like okay what can i model around that and i think as cinematographers were really used to really studying light and knowing the time of day and when either the sun is right or when the sun bounces off of a building or you get a yeah you get a certain reflection you get something that you just couldn't recreate in a short time window and i really love that the right location with the right lighting and then you know sometimes it's just the mood and it's empty and it's wonderful and sometimes you have a subject and you make it all part of it but yeah it can start with the person it can start with the location and often it starts with light i think that's the main thing i mean just waking up in the morning in my apartment the light is so incredible that right away I'm extremely inspired and it's so difficult to even make it to the coffee machine because <laughs> I want to just I want to just dig in and capture that, you know? For sure. Luckily there's Instagram stories, like it's a savior. Because you can get it out of your system and move on with life. Do you so find... don't have to like, you know, load film and like do all this right. stuff. Do you find that you shoot every day? I shoot every day. Yeah. yeah. Every day. I mean in terms of I shoot every single day, yes. On film, 
not every single day, but I, I would always have a role loaded in my Hasselblad and in the Leica for sure. Yeah. And then just, yeah, sometimes it's crazy what happens when you have it on film. It's just that much better. For sure. <laughs> you know, it's like, hey, if you go through it your whole life and you take one amazing shot on film every month, let's say, right? And then you're like 80, 90 and you have an exhibition. Holy shit, I want to see that exhibition. I mean, it's like, it's the best, right? Or you like Bruce Davidson, for example, right? I met him in Vienna through a friend of a friend. Actually, Mark Forster told me he's in, in mm. Vienna. So I met him and I actually didn't know who Bruce Davidson was, but he was about to get a life achievement award. This and that. So, hey, you know, I mean, serious educational gap here. You know, I missed out on a massive photographer. And I saw his work and I was absolutely blown away. And I mean, here's a guy. And sure enough, I met him and he had an MP4 around his neck. <laughs> because that guy's ready to shoot. Like he's ready to push the button. He only pushes the button on film and his shots are crazy. Like, I don't even know how it's too abstract to explain it. So, sure. you know, whoever just listens should just look up Bruce Davidson. But yeah, I think there's a big Annie Leibovitz film exhibit from her early days downtown mm. right now. Oh, cool. Yeah. I want to see it. Do you have a favorite film stock that you go to? Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, unfortunately, my favorite film stock has been disconnected, uh, dis uh, discontinued. But it's uh, it was the Fuji Provia 400X. That on medium format to me was the purest, most unbelievable thing, because it's so it is reversal film. It was. So it's true color. You know, the contrast is the blacks are pretty black. But the colors are not poppy. The colors were actually very earthy. And that to me is something that ectochrome just doesn't do. Ectochrome is all about like, look at the color, you know? Kodachrome is like, look at the color. And Kodachrome was unbelievable. That was beautiful. But, you know, William Eggleston Kodachrome, that's like, that's it. But yeah, the Provia, Oh man, if I could if I could have that film stock back, then I would probably it actually crushed me when they discontinued it. Because <laughs> it was it. my thing. For sure. So I'm like, what am I gonna do now? Like, you know, I was like, I'm not that It's like a death. Like, I mean, I was <laughs> like, this is crazy. Like, you know, discontinue oil paint or something. <laughs> exactly. It, it's just weird. So now it's like, of course it's portra a lot, you know, everybody shoots yeah. portra. Portra 400 is great. When you push it, it's great. I like, actually, I like black and white film. I really like the, the 400 TX. I think that's a great stock. You know, I shoot Ilford too. It's, it's a mix. It depends. Sometimes you want a little bit softer black. Sometimes you want the really Punch heavy contrast in yeah. grain. Usually I like that. I just shot a roll of the uh, Ilford HP5 for the first Ooh. time, which I liked. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Actually, probably my favorite black and white series was that mm. yeah I have to pull out a, a still yeah you can put it on the website cool perfect <laughs> but it's actually nudity maybe you shouldn't do it <laughs> it's always dangerous I know they, they just discontinued they... my entire uh, tumblr account oh you're kidding yeah it's like tumblr has sold out to the I don't know who but oh that is so tragic they don't like skin yeah I mean Instagram is now censoring drawings like you know light yeah. drawing yeah, yeah. Art. It, I, I mean, it's a fine line and that's opening a whole nother can of worms to talk about that. But like that whole issue, quote unquote, it's like you look at any great painter, right? Pretty much. Sure. Let's say seven out of ten. There will be some kind of nudity in there. But nudity as that like crazy word as that like censor worthy thing. It's like it's form and you find form in nature, architecture, bodies. We all have bodies. We look at these bodies every day. It's all about shapes and ratios and and, and, and aesthetics. And then people build furniture based on, you know, you know, shapes in the body and you look at a Coke bottle and so on and so forth. So I don't understand why that is such a thing now. Like, why is that all of a sudden a thing? It's just shocking to me, yeah. you know? Absolutely. Like the sensuality of a beautiful car, the sensuality of a beautiful woman, you know, that the, the table that we're 
sitting on right now, the way it's like swung and shaped. It's like, I mean, it's just all one and it's all art and it's all aesthetics. It makes people feel good. And yeah, enough said. That was my little <laughs> yeah. thing. I agree fully, Lucy, for sure. One of the things that I was initially drawn to your work too is that it does have a very painterly quality to it. W were you inspired by the painting side of things or where um, do you get your aesthetics from? I, I grew up in Vienna and I think subconsciously I was just around fine art all my life and I always loved going to the museum. It's also, I think, when you see the world in a more desaturated way, in a softer way, growing up in, you know, Central and Northern Europe, Eastern Europe, we don't have much sun. And that soft light just creates a certain aesthetic, you know, and having to shoot wide open on your, let's say, you know, whatever medium format camera, any camera softens the image. It's not about snappy and hard contrast. So that's where the painterly quality comes from. And I think compositionally, I was always drawn to always loved people looking away and the abstraction of things and, 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 and finding new forms you know, marrying, um, let's say, bodies with nature and, and, and together it creates like a new shape. It's not like obviously like, hey, I'm like, you know, this person in nature standing around. It's like, OK, the branch becomes the arm, becomes the back, becomes, you know, everything turned away from camera and most of it is dark. But, you know, some remaining daylight just kind of like digs out the shapes. And that's where I think that comes from in a way. Yeah, yeah. I love that. You know, I noticed very specifically on Christopher Robin, which was gorgeous. It had a very stylized look, but also very natural at the same time where you, you know, it blends so perfectly that you, the viewer obviously should not be aware of that that's happening, but that seems like an incredibly difficult thing to achieve. What was your thought process to get there? I just, my, my, I mean, the starting point was, were all the shepherd drawings and the, the drawings had such a strong emotional. I had a very strong emotional connection with these drawings. There's a certain, there's a certain minimalism that's obvious. And within these few pen strokes, there's a lot of movement also. So I knew that I always wanted to get a sense of it needed to feel very tactile. Mm -hmm. And that's where I started. And then it was about, okay, we're shooting actually on location. We're in nature. We want to feel the wind, we want to feel the morning dew, you know, when they move through the weeds and, and the grass and stuff, we want to be part of it and in it and below and look up at nature. And so it's like the, the, the aesthetic really evolved from, there were all these mini stimuli and, and from that, the, the, the look just evolved. You know, I knew that I needed you know, film texture and I wanted to have film color and I wanted to just have something that is just incredibly tangible any step of the way. And then in, La in London, it's a bit different because th there's a different story arc to London and it's about being a bit more removed and things being a bit more cold. But in the forest, you want to be in nature, you want to smell it, you want to feel it. Um, so yeah, I think a style just evolved from all these little pieces of information that are processed in the in the in the R&D process. Right. And we had four months to do that, which was amazing. Incredible. You know, it's like to me coming from mainly commercials where I mean, if you're lucky, you get an extra tax card. If you're lucky, you have two days of conversation with the director instead of one. Right. And so all of a sudden it was four months of going to the office, essentially wow. spending time with all the department heads and like really just kind of digging into it. You know, and yeah. I was sketching a lot and I was reading the uh, all the books, the originals. And it was it was freaking like Winnie the Pooh world, like everything. Amazing. Yeah, <laughs> what an incredible way to work, too. Yeah. To have that luxury of time. Was there anything that changed in your thinking from I mean, I know you've done some some sort of medium budget. Well, medium, like I think all I see is you was just like 30. Pretty, but this but this was a leap up, right? Yeah, this one was like, I mean, there's a tax incentive in London, so they got 25% back. I think when it was all said and done, it was about 75 million. Wow. Um, which for me was a substantial jump. Uh, for a Disney movie, it's actually semi-low budget. Right, completely. You know? Yeah. And we had just a lot of time pressure. Yes, we had four months to prep it, 
but we had only three months to shoot it. So it was all in 72 shooting days. And they didn't even, I think they had nine months to actually finish the movie from the time that we finished with all the VFX, you know, 1,475 or something like that. uh, VFX shots had to be done at the highest level. You know, I mean, nobody, it was unbelievable. And I was actually quite involved throughout that process. Mm -hmm. And um, when I was in London, I would always stop by frame store. Uh, when I was in Montreal, I would stop by Framestore, talk about lighting, talk about my philosophy, you know, look at what people have been doing and mm. got a really amazing uh, behind the scenes uh, of everything. And so it was it was always good. You know, I did virtual camera whenever it was needed. So whenever it is full CG, which is really only Winnie the Pooh's house when he wakes up mm-hmm. that scene, um, it's still all my shots and my lighting, everything. So, you know, we spend a lot of time together. It was beautiful. What was the biggest challenge from you jumping to that budget level? There's something about communication. There's something about the sincerity of everything. There are a lot of meetings. Everybody gets together. You know, there are a lot of abbreviations and we're like, well, just three letters. I didn't know what any of that meant. You know, I always said yes and just whatever. <laughs> but it was like it was it's just a different thing. It's like now you're in a different league. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, everything is very. I mean, it's quite serious because there's a lot of money on the line. You know, and people will turn towards you and be like, what is your opinion? And A, you better have an opinion and B, you better have an opinion that doesn't hurt the process, that helps the process, that makes things more efficient, hopefully less expensive. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, shooting on film made it more expensive in some ways, but then they probably also saved some money in others. So I don't know. But I just wanted to always push for what was I felt was really right but also have the community in mind. I want to make sure that everyone is, you know, it's, it's, it's good overall. Right. It's a good thing. It's, a, it's, it's, yeah, it's just different. But you, I think with the right people, and I did have the right people around me, it was very good. I could always ask questions. You know, I could always, I asked a lot of questions in the beginning mm-hmm. because I really wanted to know. I didn't want to just show up and then stay quiet and then, leave again right and that was the movie yeah i was like i'm here it's an amazing opportunity i want to fully embrace it you know i want to fully embrace that leading role and here we go and it wasn't in the beginning it took a few weeks to really get full self-confidence because i just shoot how I shoot, you know, I did not grow up in the studio system as um, a camera assistant, then as an operator, and then as a cinematographer, right? You know, you come from music videos, it's, it's the Wild West. I mean, it's whatever, right? For everybody, right? <laughs> you know, for producers, like the race, everyone's kind of oh, like man. doing the thing. And, and suddenly you find yourself in a very structured world, you know, and working with operators, too. It's like, I'm like, oh, I have operators, great. They're like, no, no, they're operating the camera. I'm like, what do you mean they're operating the camera? Like, I'm operating the camera. Like, that's, <laughs> like the you know, I'm like, give me my camera back. Like, that's weird. <laughs> so that was a big learning step for me. And it's also delegation, right? And like, how do you, yeah, how do you remain yourself yet function in this new ecosystem? Right. How do you tackle a complex scene like, for example, the... The scene in the train station with the red balloon was just gorgeous. How do you, how do you even approach something that complex? Yeah, it, it was really complex, actually. It was really abstract because the thing is, so this train station is the original Dover train station, which, which was one of the biggest hub commercially and, and in terms of people traffic at the time. Now it's a parking lot. And it stayed a parking lot when we were shooting. So we just cleared the cars out. And at first we we're like, okay, they're going to come in. They're going to clear out the concrete, um, resurface the train tracks. I mean, it was, adv- I was like, really? Okay. Um, I guess this is a big budget movie. It's like, they're going to rebuild the Dover train station. Copy that. <laughs> so, but then cut to reality. And even on a movie of that scale, it was like reality struck. And it was like, no, it's still a parking lot and you have to make it work. All right, cool. So now it was, you know, art department did magic, you know, dressing everything up as trains. We actually had just 
train bucks on on pulleys. So people would actually pull these trains through, which were just kind of hollow, like things of nothingness. And then visual effects would put, you know, the shells on. But then again, to make it good, the lighting has to be really on point and interactive. So let's say, for example, I put a big light up and the light shoots across the, the train platform. But when the train goes through, that would be blocked. So you have to take that into consideration. So all the, the lighting, the gripping, all these things had to accommodate for that. When there's a reflection, you know, we we played with mirrors as if the sun was hitting off, you know, the moving trains, glass and creating some things. So there are all these subtle things that, that I wanted to incorporate to make it really real because I'm so allergic watching VFX heavy movies. And it's just like, it seems like it's pasted on. I was like, I cannot be part of a film like that. Right. It's terrible. Yeah. You know, so we wanted to make it very tangible. And, and luckily with, with Chris Lawrence, you know, helming the VFX operation as a supervisor and, and Michael Eames for animation, they were just all about that. That was amazing. I mean, our conversations, it was, I think, probably Yes, possibly it's just one of my top three favorite things about the experience mm -hmm. was my collaboration with them. I learned a ton and it was it was just beautiful. It was so much mutual respect and they really wanted to see what I would come up with from a gut feeling standpoint and what it would do in the real world. And then they would let me know what I would have to do differently or how they would augment what I did. And so it was almost extremely tight. And then you know, the VFX Oscar nomination to me was a testament of that collaboration. And so I felt really involved. Like I felt really, I was like part of it, you know, yeah. even though I didn't animate a frame, even though I didn't do any, you know, CGI and whatnot. It, I mean, it definitely comes through though. In yeah. The film. I animated the camera a bit, you know, <laughs> CG camera, but for sure. it's, it's, yeah, that was, that was phenomenal. I mean, the train station is how do you just, sorry to get back to your question. No, I mean, course. How do you approach such a complex scene? It's really, um, it's baby steps, you know? And on a film like this, you usually have the time. You walk, we all walked onto basically the parking lot as a ble uh, blank canvas. We use tape and it's like, okay, here's the train tracks. Here's the shop. Here's where Ewan interacts with um, the ticket guy. This is where Pooh runs off. And we made X's and little marks and like we mapped out the whole thing over there. So you can kind of see it. And then I would take pictures from the vantage points, from the bridge, from this and that. And I would kind of see, okay, this is where you use the cable cam. This is handheld, this is Steadicam, this is whatever. We can use multiple cameras here. And Mark is very good. Mark Forster is very good about um, his planning and planning the scenes with uh, diagrams. So we just print out bird's eye view, very rudimental, uh, rudimental? rudimentary rudimentary maps of the um, the location and I can draw in all the camera angles. Oh, wow. Ba, 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 ba. It's so fast. You're like, okay, all the shots, boom, next one, boom. So we actually break down a script extremely fast mm -hmm. because I think we're extremely aligned when it comes to camera angles and it just kind of flows out of me. Like I know every shot, I see the whole thing. So I just have to kind of like draw it in and we're moving on. And then, you know, it goes into storyboarding stage and then you work with incredibly talented, like freakishly talented uh, storyboard guys and concept artists. And the concept artists will draw you, paint you like an amazing scene that captures the look and feel, you know, mm -hmm. at that given time in the story. And the storyboard artist then would draw basically you know, the shots and how everything works in sequence. And they are, I mean, they're masters because they're basically directors, cinematographers. I mean, they, they have their own thing. If you don't stop them, they will pick up a camera and start shooting the movie. <laughs> so you have to slow them down sometimes and be like, look, I would do it like this. I would do it like this. Or Mark would be like, oh, I'd rather, you know, do it in a single take than like in four shots, whatever. It all is a communication, but the better all these elements are, I mean, it, in, in that film, it was like people would come with ideas. I was like, yes, 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 please. That's right. that would be very lovely if we could do it exactly like you just proposed because it's genius. 
So the better the, your collaborators, you know, everybody makes you look better. Absolutely. You want to make people look better, they make you look better, and everyone high fives and it's a love fest. And that was kind of Christopher Robin a little bit. Oh, it sounds amazing. That's usually really boring, awful movies that go like that. <laughs> right. For the board artists, did, did you give them a shot list or did they, were they left to their own yeah. devices? Um, yeah, it's a mix. I mean, they would just board the whole movie and I would uh, shot list for myself the whole movie and then shot list with Mark. Okay. So there were three. So basically the, the storyboard artist would always consult with Mark and I would always consult with Mark. Mm. And usually it was very aligned and sometimes I had to tweak some things with the storyboards. Or I had a different idea, you know, how to shoot a certain scene. Does Mark get into lens choice and stuff with you with that? Or do you, does he leave it up he to He doesn't you? get into lens choices. Okay. It's more about shots and feel. Yeah. You know, it doesn't, it's never, it's, ne and, and I like that too. I, I'm actually not a fan of overly heady filmmaking. Yeah. It makes no sense to me. Like, if you have really have an issue between a 35 and a 40, then we have more issues, <laughs> I think. Yeah, probably. It's like... Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. I mean, the thing is that you can totally, I love when it gets into the nuance of things and when the difference between a 35 and a 40 actually starts making sense. But that's usually further down the line of decisions that have to be made, right. you know? So, yeah. On a, on a bigger film, how do you manage where the character is or the scene is emotionally with the cinematography and how do you keep track of all that you mean um how to how to keep it emotional on a bigger system as a po well, uh, bigger movie how to keep so. it emotional but also sort of to know where each character is emotionally you know with when you're shooting out of order and it's a 72 mm -hmm. day mm -hmm. schedule i mean that this this the script knowing the script really well is super key because you, i would know that at that point i mean i would Especially once you get to know, once you're deeper in and you see how, you know, every department puts the little spin on. You see it in the makeup choices that start to vary. The wardrobe mm -hmm. being more worn at that point. There are all these little continuity things that hint and inform your process as well. But ultimately, it is a gut feeling. Yeah, I would always try to. I tell a lot with the lighting. To me, the lighting is, I think, the single most impactful way to convey emotion pretty much yeah you know if you say it really like broad you're like okay a sunny day feels so much happier than a foggy day right but then you get into let's say the boardroom scene that's not an obvious scene where it's like oh the cinematography whatever but i was like okay the lighting having harder light creep in and hitting ewan pretty violently also it's like it, he's ex, he's it's exposing so he is getting potentially there's a tribunal of mm -hmm. people and he's about to get exposed right he's about to like it's like you know has he lost his marbles like what is going on you know his suitcase is full of witchy weird shit you know <laughs> and you know and it's just it's just you play with these little things and so when, 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 you know, I have my little spin on the characters and the story and my way to voice them is through lighting and also through camera, of course, but I think lighting is quite, quite strong. Yeah. Do you like a lot of camera movement? Yeah, yeah, I do actually. I think I, I think I always move the camera. Actually, I pretty much always move the camera in, 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 you know, even if it's a static shot, is it a breathing handheld moment, you know, mm -hmm. or is it... Yeah, I think I like movement. I mean, I think that's cinema. Cinema is about moving photography. And yeah, I love that. I think my cinematography is informed by my still photography in many ways. Mm -hmm. But the element of movement is that beautiful thing about cinema. But I admire also directors and DPs who can shoot a whole movie almost in lockoffs. It takes so much deliberation, restraint, and kind of precision to do that. And I, I would love to do that too. I would love to try it. But my instinct is to move, you know, and the editing, I like when, when my movement really helps also the edit, you know, because I, I, I come from a editing back, I started editing before anything and music. And 
yeah i don't know it's, it's all these things you know yeah it's like it's a form of dancing or something for sure yeah i think you probably already answered this but it, it seems like you like to just rather than design a shot ahead of time more kind of feel it out on the day or is it a blend of things <clears throat> i mean you have to you have to plan you you absolutely have to plan things because you need the right equipment on the day you know grips have to lay track beforehand you know techno cranes have to be brought into the most impossible locations days ahead sometimes mm -hmm. so yes i plan but i leave room for experimentation always i think my thing is i need to have a handheld camera ready at all times so it's like you know sometimes you can get carried away with let's say okay a uh, a cable cam shot and all of a sudden the camera is literally tied up and you see the most incredible thing somewhere <laughs> <laughs> right. and you don't have a camera it's an issue you know so i like to i like to have the option of really go bare bones mm -hmm. you know even if it's about pulling my own focus you know sometimes i did that actually on Christopher Robin, I just oh, really? yanked the wow. camera and it was really kind of frowned upon. But eventually it was, I was, I mean, I was always supported actually. My team was amazing and they were always supportive, but they looked at me a little bit like, first of all, what the hell is he wearing that looks like a fishing rod around his waist <laughs> sticking up with the camera dangling off, right? That's not really a feature film thing. You don't show up with the easy rig and just hose things down. But, you know, <laughs> I kind of did bring that a little bit. I did hose things down sometimes. And it, it actually, you know, eventually I think people understood also why. Because it brings an immediacy and it helps blurring the line between something that's fabricated and something that's real. And this is actually a powerful tool, but in combination with the big stuff. And, right. uh, you know, it's like you want to use it all and use it right. But there is a place for it. For sure. You know? Do you lean on the easy rig a lot in commercial stuff? Yeah. Yeah. It's a mix. It's a mix. I mean, I, I with the Mini, not so much anymore because I can actually swing that camera around without an easy rig. And I actually really like holding the camera quite low. And on the easy rig, you're actually, that's not really ideal. So I like to just undersling the camera and hold it on the, on the handle a lot and run around and do whatever. But... I mean, the easy rig, it used to be much more important than it is now because now the projects are getting bigger and with bigger budgets and more complexity, the easy rig is often just on the truck just in case. Yeah, more toys. Yeah, more toys. Do you approach your commercial work differently than you approach a feature? I think the, the initial instincts, the, the, the impulses are the same, but you just have so much less time and it's also... It's a, it's a bit different. I mean, often it's like style is more important than the substance because also substance is also only created over time. And with a growing character, you know, the complexities of a script, it's a different, it's a different thing. So yeah, you approach it differently, I would say. I mean, plus, I mean, you're usually stuck to pretty rigid boards anyway, right? Shooting boards. The boards actually, I don't, yeah, I know commercials love boards. They say, but what about <laughs> this board? What about this? I mean, hey, I don't know at what point the board. I mean, who drew this board? First of all, when did he draw the board? You see the actual location. You see, I mean, I don't know. So, I'm I'm a little skeptical about boards. Right. I love to believe that I don't shoot boards, but I do shoot boards. So we all shoot boards, you know, you can, you can name it what you want. Yes, you're shooting the boards. But within that, you know, sometimes you're basically part of in the creation, you know, of certain things, uh, angles and whatnot. And sometimes it's literally, yeah, you have to shoot the board and then you try to make it as creatively, via, artistically viable and creative as possible within the constraints. Right. That Toyota commercial that was in the Super Bowl was pretty spectacular so like the creative on that was actually good and I don't say that about many commercials so I mean that is you know there's a certain thing to be said about let's put it this way certain directors have the luxury of being part of the creation process with an agency 
And but more commonly, the agency will give something to the director that is already basically more or less set in stone. Mm. And then within those constraints, the, the director can uh, be creative, you know, and make it the best it can be. On Toyota, Mark was involved early, so that was really good. You know, they were on board to do this idea, and 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 yeah, it was good. I mean, it was still a struggle. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to shoot a commercial. I like that. It was ridiculous, and it was a rare thing. And I knew reading it, I was like, okay, I need to really give my time to this project. This is not something where you show up on set and you shoot it. We had, I think, almost three weeks of prep. Wow, how many shooting days? I think in the end it was three days. Wow. Yeah, it's only three shooting days. In New Mexico, in a remote location, the spaceport, Virgin Spaceport, near freezing temperatures, sometimes freezing temperatures. Wow. Like, you know, try to do a wet down, then send a spot car at high speed over like basically an ice lake. I mean, it was just, we, we, we got a few, there were a few curveballs attached to yeah. this project in particular. But, you know, I think what it always comes down to, I mean, it was somewhat designed to fail, actually. Mm. This is a little bit of a harsh thing to say, you know, in public, but it was definitely extremely challenged, this project. Yeah, I bet. Because also, I think some people underestimated the magnitude of what it takes to actually get qualified crew in large numbers out on a short notice in remote location, doing cable runs that are crazy. I mean, doing like, you know, okay, how many jennies? How many this and that? You actually, we're building the structures. We're putting the lights where they're going to be put in CG because they have to interact with the car. They have to flare at the right time, all of that. So in order to do this right, you really want to, you know, build as much as possible. And constantly I was asked, like, why do we, like, you know why are we doing this like why are we doing that why is it like this why is it like that and like i know what mark wants now mm-hmm. mark doesn't mess around mark doesn't want some cheap shit i'm sorry <laughs> right <laughs> he doesn't want so. some cheap shit i mean he doesn't want you know it's like it's it's it doesn't matter okay what's the budget okay cool it still has to be good it has to be it's like we're not going to do this unless it's like the best it can be so you know, or we all staying home and we shoot in the parking lot in LA. Like, let's either go all the way or we're not going all the way. So you're walking this fine line because you want to be politically correct. You want to do other things, but you still have to push extremely hard. Like everybody, you know, yourself, your crew, the thing. But you, you know, I had multiple meetings on this table. Everyone is around it, and we're all like, "How are we gonna do this?" Like, okay, here's the lighting order. Boom, it was the most insane. I was like, yeah, I mean, let's do it, you know? I <laughs> right. mean, boom, you know? It's, uh, like, how many uh, Esteras and Quasars can we get? How many are in LA? How much are in the US? How much are... So it was like, it started at a pretty crazy point, but eventually you wheel it back and you get smarter and smarter and more efficient. And I think we just about pulled it off. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, it's incredible. Uh, I will definitely link that for people that want to check it out. I know earlier on in... Uh some interview that I read or heard you talk about your early doc work. Do you still, are you still interested in documentary? I'm, I'm interested. I'm working on a documentary on my own documentary right now. Hmm. Um, yeah, I love it because to me, I mean, what's so intriguing, I think about documentary and not documentary in the traditional sense is that it gives you room for abstracting things and to put a filmmaker's touch on it that essentially maybe warps reality in a way. Maybe it is a a lie, you know, that I'm telling by doing so. But it also creates a romanticized realism and it creates something that potentially is, goes deeper than just showing the facts, you know? I think facts is more television, like reporting And, 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 and cinematic realism in documentaries can be something very poetic. And there have been very strong examples, you know, I mean, throughout film history, really, but like also recently, and I think it's being really embraced and working with Alma also, she has definitely had, you know, an impact also on me, how I see the world. And I, I was always into dancing and movement. And it's like, 
you know, when we shot Bombay Beach and dancing became, I mean, these real people, you know, were doing choreographies, you know, they were like, it's, it, it was amazing, like to see them do that and really express themselves through movement and dancing, which was so foreign to them. But it's such an interesting thing that was created, you know, it was awesome. so magical. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm working with a ceramicist right now in, in, in uh, 29 Palms and we're making a little film. Oh, so very cool. I shot I shot all the stills on film and then I shot everything moving on digital so far. But I'm actually reshooting also the things that I've shot already because it's not the right format. Oh, interesting. It really has to be on film. It just has to be. It's like it's one of those things where you see that you just you know, you pick the wrong paint. It's just not quite sticking on the canvas. I, Gotta wipe it clean and stuff. Yeah, <laughs> no, <I'm> starting <laughs> over. Well you do Super 16 or 35? Hmm. I actually want to do a mix of, um, it's mainly Super 16, some 35, and I want to shoot some 65. Oh, wow. Yeah. For out there, that'd be incredible. Yeah. I think that's one thing I took away from Christopher Robin. It's like, you know, it started as, when I talked to the producers, it started as a, just wanting to test a row of 65, almost as personal. Can I just test one? I, I knew they just had done it on Nutcracker, so I was like, "Can I just, can I just smell the can of '65? Like, can I just get weird with it?" And that test actually turned into shooting it partially on '65, which was your nefarious plan. Weren't it, it is undeniable. I mean, the beauty of it—it it looks almost three-dimensional. It has so much depth. Anything it has to do with this is probably completely wrong, but I'm just going to make it up and make it look I'll believe it. believable. But like it has to do that the emulsion is perhaps a bit thicker also than on 35. So all the crystals and the way the light interacts with the crystals actually creates depth. And when you shoot digital, that's not the case because it actually falls on a flat surface. Right? Right. So the chip is flat, film is three-dimensional and 65 potentially even more so. And so when you see that printed or scanned, it doesn't matter, it just it has that extra like tangibility and it's very powerful. You can feel it for sure. Yeah. I mean, I do think that there's something, not to get back too much into the film versus digital, but you can feel the organic quality of film. I mean, you can feel it. Yeah, it's undeniable. It, it really is. I just, I just got a roll of black and white 35 back and I actually shot, um, when I was in Miami, I shot um, on the M10 and on, on the M6, like um, s simultaneously, mm. because I would just be like, okay, you know, if something is wrong with the film, and I was actually traveling for four weeks after, so I was just dragging the film from scanner to like, I mean, from, from x-ray machine to x-ray, it got x-rayed like eight times. <laughs> I was like, okay, I need to have something, so I shot digital as well. And so I got really used to the digital images, and I just got the film back the other day and I'm looking at the film and especially on 35, like when you look at 35 and you look at digital, especially on wide shots, I mean, it is the lack of definition on 35. is like, it's astounding, mm -hmm. right? Sometimes you're like, wait, what is it? It looks out of focus. But you spend a few hours with that image and all of a sudden you see that it's not about being able to zoom in 400 times. They seem the fucking like Jerry Blossom on the no it's it's the emotion yeah it's like you're there that's how i felt when i saw it it's not exactly what i saw but it's how i felt and that is so powerful i think for at least for me that is the definition of a successful photograph if i can make it look how it felt on the day mm -hmm. to me that's exactly yeah make it look how it felt that's exactly it yeah are there any films from film history that are deeply inspiring to you that you return back to? Yeah. It's such a cliche, but I mean, 2001 to me is really special. And so is Solaris mm -hmm. and for different reasons. And I think that there is something about when a film starts with just sound, and then, you know, you get the desert and a bunch of monkeys running around. They're obviously fake, but you don't care because it is just, there is something about 
the craft and the slow build and the severity of then switching to space, you know, and like, yes, one of the most famous edits, we all learned it in film school, but it's just the way that that film builds is bananas to me. I love it. It's like meditation. Mm-hmm. And and also Solaris. And I think there's something about, I mean, Russian cinema is, it's just incredible. I mean, they are high art is amazing. The music is amazing. The poetry, the whole thing is just, they, they, wow, there's so much depth, you know, it's so tangible. Yeah. It's so good. I think I love, I really like, for some reason, I, I just really like space movies, <laughs> but I also really like, actually, I don't love fantasy, but I was really inspired by Dark Crystal as a kid. I love that. Dark Crystal, actually, I think I'm kind of like a walking and talking, like kind of, I don't even know. I, I'm not a Delfling or whatever they call it, but like, I, I, I was, <laughs> there's something about the greediness and it's kind of scary, you know? Everything is fucked up. Sometimes the good guys look fucked up. Everything is just, I love that. And yeah, there, there's something, Labyrinth and Dark Crystal. A never ending story. I love that book too. As a kid. Yeah. But I really, I think that's, that, that was one of the great incentives of doing Christopher Robin because I felt that it's an opportunity. I mean, you're sending a message to the next generation or generations to come. You know, I got the opportunity to make a motion picture based on legendary literary gold. It's like, so many generations have grown up with that story you know the winnie the pooh character is i mean it's it's the most endearing weird in a way it's like wait what's this what is he saying you know like but then the whole like the, the you know the tower of pooh and the whole like philosophy behind it yeah i mean this is just genius and so i felt like you know if i can inspire you know, future generations of people who, you know, with that aesthetic, then I think I've done something good in the world and I can go back to selling cars and, you know, sodas <laughs> at the Super Bowl. Right. But at least I've done one thing that might have impacted a, a future generation, you know, in a positive way. And I think the, the, the philosophy of Winnie the Pooh is something extremely positive and uplifting. Absolutely. And probably needed now more than... Yeah, we need more poo in this world. (laughs) We do need more poo in this world. Are you getting a lot of scripts, feature scripts now? I got a lot of scripts for a while, and it it was very difficult for me to make a choice. And there was one film that I was honestly inspired to shoot um, that went to somebody else. Mm. I actually don't know who's shooting this film, but um, everything else didn't feel right. It's a bit of a tough act to follow now yeah. because with a movie in general, I'm extremely selective because I'm giving my lifetime pretty significant amount and a lot of energy to a project. And I only want to do it when I can give it and I want to give it my all. Luckily, doing commercials enables me to be that selective, you know? Yeah. There are feature DPs that don't have the luxury of a commercial career to fall back to, onto. Right. And so I'm, yeah, I'm trying to hold the balance. I have not picked my next film. What? I'm uh, getting close, but maybe. Yeah. We'll see. What, what would have to excite you about a script to make you want to pick it? First of all, it needs to be a script that I can just read basically in one go and be moved by it at the end and be surprised by it and in a world where we feel like we've seen it all we've heard it all you know it's okay oh this plot twist oh this character who like sure if it starts like this but then you get surprised that's great you know i love being like that cynical reader and then be really kind of blown away or like that's what i need or just um you know that the images really start popping up in my head Mm. And usually I see things quite clearly quickly. Yeah. It's like whether that comes from a conversation or from reading the script, actually, but it's pretty clear what the look is to me right away. And like very key visuals usually sustained from the beginning stages all the way to the end. It was with Christopher Robin, it was like that too. I knew what certain things would be 100%, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, it's 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 rare though. It's difficult. No, I mean everything definitely is starting to feel a bit derivative. I mean even from the writing side, I'm like, what the hell am I gonna write? <laughs> it's. I think you can tell when people write their story and when people write a story. Everyone knows how to write write a story. You know, you learn it in school. We know archetypes. We know whatever is it the hero's journey is it this and that is it like you know we've seen enough thrillers to kind of know how they work but i think when somebody starts to be really authentic in their writing and they write how they write and they just maybe bring things into the script fearlessly that they might think are trivial but they're actually the most emotional details of a character or a plot but it's fearlessness and it's scary because as a writer as a director you know, as a cinematographer too, but not as much. I really admire, you know, writers and directors that are so naked when they make a film. Like, you know, when people like, okay, let's say, for example, Gaspar Noé, right? Mm -hmm. Or Gaspar Noé, I don't know how to say his last name. Okay, if I made Irreversible and my family sat in the audience at the premiere, right? Or fill in every single film that he's made. It's like, I don't know. I kind of want to pretend like I'm not a sick fuck. <laughs> but that's real filmmaking. I mean, that to me is fearless filmmaking. So when you do that, you know, it's like gambling high, you know. You can really win, you can really lose, but is it really about that? It's actually not even about, I don't, get, I don't think he cares. I don't think if so. He's winning or losing. Yeah. He's just he's just doing his thing like that's what he you know he's pretty naked and I admire that I really do. Can you think of the last film you saw that moved you? When I saw Black Klansman and the end of Black Klansman did actually blow my mind because I mean it was a violent style statement it was a violent statement a mirror in the face punch to the gut to society. We're living it right now. We've been, uh, you know, kind of like you in this film and it's like a kind of a crazy, you know, you know, plot and it's kind of funny and absurd and like what's going on, you know, you kind of, you know, into the characters, but it's like filmmaking, like as we've seen it kind of, you know, mm -hmm. clever is very good, but mm -hmm. it's like, okay, but then the end and I'm like, all right, yes. That, I mean, it moved me. Yeah, you know? it really sure. did. I'm always curious about this with people that work on features. How, do you have any strategies for making it through a feature, physically, mentally, emotionally? I mean, yeah. The whole feature thing seems like, it's like a marathon, right? And you really, my goodness, I was really, it took me years to kind of be like, okay, I'm doing it, you know? And come 2013, you know, I shot and finished my first feature. And it was like, it was tough. felt like the hardest, craziest thing. I was beat down. I was like, why is anyone, why would you do this to yourself as a career? It's crazy. It's so brutal. But it gets easier with every time because you know how to pace yourself. You're also not as afraid. So you approach things with more ease and therefore you're less stressed. And it's like, you know, Christopher Robin was another animal because it was just like, yeah, the task was daunting in many ways. But I think every time you achieve something that you thought you weren't capable of, then you, you earned a little token, and then that little token jar box is called self-confidence. And so you build that self-confidence one project at a time. And also athleticism and stamina, you know? And you go to the gym. I mean, as a as a DP, we, we have the luxury you know, when you're really busy, like of shooting all the time. So you really, it becomes like when the camera lands on my shoulder, I don't even feel it. Like it's like, it's like one, it, I'm one with it because I do it all the time. And so you, through repetition, you turn into this, this filmmaking athlete and also your brain, because you make decisions much faster every single time and you draw from experience, but you also come from a, you know, you name it, you just, you just grow. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's, I have to be mentally and physically, I know I have to know that I'm feeling strong, that I'm healthy and that I am fully ready to give it my all again on the movie. 
which right now I am at that point. Mm. And it's been almost two years since Christopher Roman. Wow. But it, it took this long. And, you know, post-production can be, you know, then you have a lot of color crashing, you have this and that. And also, like, just the feeling of completing something is key. You know, maybe I, w I will get to a point eventually where I can do multiple projects at the same time or, like, go from one movie to the next. Yeah. But I've just built myself up to basically be able to, okay, complete, you know, a movie of that scale. And now I'm moving to something potentially a little bit bigger. And it's okay. It's good. Good. Wow, yeah. that's cool. I mean, I know you travel a lot as well. Do you have any uh, travel essentials or routines? Major, it's all about the routine. I'm big. I'm big on routines. First of all, I travel with two suitcases always. If you catch me at the airport, you will see me with two black suitcases because I always pack for summer and winter because you don't know where your next job is going to take you. And I hate, I'm very particular with really everything in my life. I'm a little probably extreme like that but I know what underwear I want to wear and if I don't wear that underwear I'm not comfortable and I'm not into it and it will ruin my day and same goes for my tank top and my shirt and my this and my dad and my hoodie and my hats and my whatever so travel with a lot of stuff because you know for it's part of who I am and it's like I like to express myself through clothing also and I think aesthetics and appearance and mood and like, you know, the way you shoot, the way you light, the way you dress, the, the colors, you know, it's like it is all one for me. And so, yes, part of the routine is like to pack my things. Basically, my entire closet goes into my two suitcases. And then it is also about, you know, hygiene and like all these things, because you travel a lot on planes, you want to be comfortable, you want to be hydrated, you want to stay clean, you want to stretch, you want to, you learn after a while, you know, now I'm 37. When I was 27, I didn't do any of that. But now I'm 37. And I know that I do have to maintain my body and my system and my health in a certain way to do this job. You know, absolutely. The ginger shots are becoming more vital by the day. I take one before a flight and then pack one for when I get off. Exactly. Just sitting here in your apartment, it's obvious that you, you live a very aesthetic, dare I use the word, curated life. How did that evolve or where did that come from? Have you always been that way? I, I think I've, I've always been that way, but it's more visible now because through traveling and collecting things and, you know, having my interests move, you know, from mainly photography to now a lot of music and like into, you know, furniture and, and designing things and building things and fashion and so on and so forth. It's just like, I think my taste is more outward now, but it was always there. And I also see it in early, my early work, you know, as a cinematographer, photographer, it's like the DNA has always been there. And it's just about like that refinement and also I think I'm quite influenced by, I mean, my grandmother was always a big, played a huge role in my life and the way she raised me. And I think she's the ultimate role model. Mm -hmm. And she is probably, besides that she has written, you know, bestsellers, it's been a really, she's been a very successful um, consultant and, and, and woman and um, head of the family all her life, but she's always been incredibly well dressed and put together and her you know her houses and apartments are just i mean she's really an interior designer i mean she's a lot of things but she's really an interior designer yeah. and the way she knows how to combine colors and textures and tell a story as you're moving from room to room it's just amazing it's wow. second to none incredible so I think I got a lot from that, actually. Yeah. It's uh, I really and 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 she's a, she's her garden is unbelievable. You know, she's a massive gardener, and I'm really into gardening and plants. And oh, very cool. You know, and the the, the yeah, how to keep those alive is another podcast. For sure, as <laughs> a traveling cinematographer, <laughs> I would imagine so. Yeah. That's great. I think that's pretty much it. Cool. Is there anything else you wanted to get into or talk about? It's the opportunity now. 
to say something. It's a funny and it's an amazing way, I think, to make a living with what you're really passionate about. Because the beauty is that time goes by really fast because you, you are really invested and you love what you do. But there's also a torture element to it because you are your own worst enemy and you want to always kind of, you're never good enough. You know, you never, you're like, oh, but I don't know. I'd say I, I, I can always find a reason why I want to go again and go again and go again. You know, yeah. it's like the director who does like a million takes because he knows he, ha he knows he has not yet fully extracted everything you know like a kubrick is probably i mean insane like 70 takes whatever i get it you know i i don't want to be the person and i'm not that person i can move on it's no problem but as a life task you know as an artist there's a torture element to it and i think we all have that in a way and i think there is a beautiful suffering you know, and some people will be like, oh, so stupid. You know, you have like the car and the this and then you sit on the plane all the time. I mean, shit sucks on the plane, but it's it's <laughs> but not just like just like artistically, you know, what you make, you're, you're always almost like a step or two behind mm -hmm. what you actually are creating. What is being shown to the world is actually two steps behind. So now everybody, you know, let's say if we talk about Christopher Robin, or if we talk about certain photography or whatever. I have moved on to other things in my mind space. But the reality is like, you know, it still has to surface what I'm actually doing as we're talking. Right. And so, yeah, and I just, I don't know. Yeah, that's got to be a weird position to uh, have moved on mentally, but still have to be talking about something that's like done. It's cathartic because it's, you get to you had distance and you get to reflect again mm -hmm. on things that have happened in the past. And that's actually beautiful too. Yeah. So it's a really nice part of it, but I'm very excited for the next steps. Like I'm excited to, yeah, just to, to, to show and do what is happening now, you know? Right. Status quo. What do you, are you into anything specific now or what's the next thing? Um, I mean, besides, you know, film projects that are, now happening or not happening. I mean, it's very close to getting to the point to, to shoot another movie, but um, I think I'm very, I'm very intrigued about certain personal projects I have. Mm -hmm. One is the documentary that I'm doing and, you know, another one has to do with uh, photography and uh, uh, fashion and designing some pieces that mm -hmm. will be, you know, incorporated also into film and photography. And then it all kind of finding some cross avenues between it all. It's really beautiful to have other hobbies, you know, and it's so cross informative. You know, it's very easy to get caught in this, like going from project to project and basically, you know, your resume gets longer and longer as a director of photography. That's also one part of me, you know, it's a very big part of me, but it's, it's not the only part of me. So I want to express myself in other ways too. Very cool. Well, cool, man. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. It's great to Definitely. talk to you. Yeah, good talking. Thank you. Thank you.